I'm Mike Gillis. I'm Casey Dorn. And welcome back to another mini-episode of Radio vs. the Martians. We're coming off of our big Superman panel, and with superheroes on the brain, we are going to talk about a little piece of news that has been rattling around the geekosphere, but because it wasn't really pertinent to the Superman episode, we decided to put it off till now, and that is... Ben Affleck, Batman. Yeah, and... (laughs) It actually just sounds stupid to say it out loud. But, you know, the internet kind of overreacted. I mean, if you want to call this an overreaction, I'd really call it a complete fucking meltdown. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was definitely not in proportion to the actual news. Yeah, let's have a little bit of perspective here, internet. (laughs) And I think that a really good example is there's been a number of geek websites that have really taken a look at how we react to casting in movies. I mean, yes, Batman is a beloved character. Right. One bad casting is not going to kill this character because it ha- the body of the Christopher Nolan movies is not even cold, and we already have Batman <laughs> appearing in another movie. Right. Batman, the minute he has an animated series and it gets canceled, a new one will spring up. Batman is impossible to kill. He is like that inflatable clown that when you punch it back down, it'll pop back up. We've already cycled through in the past 25 years, what, a half a dozen different actors, if you don't count the animated series, who've played Batman, ranging from really good on the Christian Bale or Michael Keaton scale to George Clooney Batnipple. (laughs) We don't need to spend a lot of time gnashing and wailing that Ben Affleck's going to ham it up and he's going to be awful. If anything, maybe he could put a little levity into Batman that is sorely needed. I really wish that were the case. I think that hopefully he'll be a lighter rendition of Batman than we've seen in the past. And as I had this conversation with Paul Rue on Mike and Paul Save the Universe, we did an entire episode about Batman. Batman's greatest strength is his versatility, that you can put the character in pretty much any scenario and he works. I think that we've seen the dark Batman. I'd like to see it go in a slightly lighter direction, but I don't have the confidence that it will because this is the Superman movie that it's going to be a sequel to. Man of Steel. It's true. And you know, if you listen to our last episode, panel episode five, you know what everyone on the show thinks about <laughs> David Goyer's work. So yeah, I'm duly concerned. I don't have any problems with Ben Affleck. I'm just going to go out there and say it. I think he's a capable actor. He's certainly matured as an actor and certainly as a filmmaker over the past 10 years. And people will freak out and chant daredevil daredevil but you know what he wasn't the thing that made that movie bad ben affleck may have been miscast but he didn't ruin that movie he wasn't a pockmark on the face of daredevil if anything we had colin farrell basically playing bullseye as if he was the piano player from reefer madness (laughs) why is the weird fidgety performance appropriate to play a crazy character it was just distracting and weird where you feel a little uncomfortable watching it it was just a bad movie period and you know what batman versus superman is not going to be a good movie either But it's not going to be Ben Affleck's fault. And I think that we already have people lining up ready to put the blame on him for it. As if, you know what? We have writing by David Goyer, same as Man of Steel. We've got direction by Zack Snyder again. And consulting from that fucking lunatic Frank Miller. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is the direction that we're going in. And it is not one that I think we can get a fair shake for Ben Affleck in. I would like to see the sort of Batman that Ben Affleck can play, but I'd rather see the movie in more capable hands where he's allowed to try something different. Because if we've learned anything from the DC live-action superhero movies, it's that we've decided that there is one tone that we're allowed to have for these movies, which is this funereal, sad, moping, everyone-hates-me-because-I'm-different, pretentious vibe to it. And I'm getting kind of sick of that. And it feels like, why are we getting another Batman if we're just going to play the same Batman over and over and over again? I took a little litmus test, tried to test the air after we finished and shipped the last panel episode on Man of Steel. And by and large, I think it kind of parallels the general response to, say, Star Trek Into Darkness. You have this incredibly polarized opinion. The true fans on one side saying, well, you're leaving out this core element that makes us love this character or this setting. And then on the other side, you're saying well, you know, it was a good action movie and I was entertained by it. David Goyer's Man of Steel, and I can only presume Batman versus Superman, is going to be the same thing where the audiences are going to be willing to forgive the dire, bleak, depressing, and quite an interesting tone, the destruction porn of these movies, because uh, that's just what we've come to expect. So you're right, I'm with you. I'm less worried about Ben Affleck hamming it up as Batman. I'm more worried about the fact that this is the new norm. I'm not somebody who's bothered by a big blockbuster action film starring superheroes. I mean, this is what superheroes are built for, is big blockbuster action. However, I think there's ways to do it in a way that's not joyless, that isn't so overly serious, that feels like it comes from a place of insecurity, that there's an embarrassment to still liking these characters as an adult, so you have to make them needlessly dark and have their costume covered with these like SWAT team seams and pockets and pouches to convince people against all whim that this guy who wears a bat costume and has a bat-themed rocket car is serious business. <laughs> but yeah. I think that we've gotten to the point where, yes, we've tried dark, serious Batman. Let's try something a little bit different. Let's go in a different direction with it because... When you don't try these different directions, when you don't embrace the strength of this character, which again is the versatility, then you're wasting the character. You need to try some different things. But getting back to this blowback and the insanity and the vitriol that's getting lobbed in Ben Affleck's direction is kind of funny because it's the sort of thing that we've seen before in the past. And a number of geek websites have posted this collage that I think is really enlightening because it's a picture of in 2008 when Heath Ledger had been cast to play the Joker. There was one promotional still of him in makeup. It was a little bit grainy that had been released and the internet went fucking batshit. They lost it. And they're like, he's going to ruin everything. There's all these Brokeback Mountain jokes that really verge on homophobic. In the end, this was a version of the Joker that people embraced when they actually saw it. And they've completely forgotten how angry they were when that person was first cast. If the internet was a thing back in 1989, can you imagine how it would have reacted when Michael Keaton from Mr. Mom was cast as, <laughs> right. was cast as Batman? I can't imagine that they wouldn't freak out. I think that when you hear any casting, especially... One that is counterintuitive, that is something that you may not expect, I think you should take a step back and say, okay, let's see where they go with this. Let's see if they're going to try something interesting or different. And the Heath Ledger version of the Joker was very different from anything that had come before. It was a different take on the character. It was a different take on the way he looked, the way he spoke. 
And it turned out to be a really interesting and I think successful adaptation of this character in a new way. And I'd like to give Ben Affleck the chance to be different in that same way as well. Again, my problem is not with Ben Affleck. My problem is I don't have a lot of confidence in these filmmakers. I would much rather see this movie handed over to somebody else to see if they can perhaps fix the Superman film franchise and do something new with Batman. Because if you have the same people doing this Batman that did the last Batman, I can only imagine that it's going to come out very, very similar. And I'd rather see a different vision on it. Yeah, agreed. In other news, speaking of outrage yet again... (laughs) But coming from a different direction this time, Grand Theft Auto V, ah, which is yes. probably the biggest video game of all time. It's already made a billion dollars worldwide. That's hard to believe. I'm sure it still took Avatar several months to break the billion dollar mark. Yeah, we're talking about a video game that has completely demolished what you would see at the box office for a movie. And of course, the GTA franchise is no stranger to controversy. And this one certainly isn't as well. In fact, is pulling a lot of anger from both ends of the political spectrum. On Fox News, Elizabeth Hasselbeck, formerly of The View, formerly of reality television, just went completely batshit. Not only did she say that we want to blame this video game again for the naval yard shootings that happened recently. but Oh, God. Even though the game hadn't even been released yet at that point. But that's nothing new. It's not like we need facts to blame things. <laughs> Again, we always have this long history of some kind of violence, some kind of tragedy that happens in our culture, and we look for a scapegoat. The list of scapegoats that we've seen in the last hundred years have gone anything from zoot suits, jazz music, video games, comic books, comic books, absolutely, leather jackets. (laughs) I mean, people looked at Marlon Brando in The Wild One. They're like, oh my God, he's going to turn people into killers. I mean, it's this weird paranoia where the older generation it looks at their kids and is terrified that they're going to gut them <laughs> because of some culture, because they listen to some rap lyrics or they're playing Dungeons and Dragons. They're going to become a Satanist murderer. It's a really irrational reaction where, let's be honest, the core causes of violence are always going to be far more complicated, but it's a lot more satisfying to not have to look in the mirror and say, you know what, maybe I'm partially to blame. Maybe there's a much more complicated solution when instead I can basically hang one person out in front of the town square and say, let's all throw rocks at this one thing, whether it's video games, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or explicit lyrics in movies or music. It's any new piece of culture that the past generation didn't enjoy. This curious bit is that GTA is so old now. I believe that the first Grand Theft Auto... Maybe 15, I want to say 15 years. I read a great article from The Guardian UK about how there's some sort of blame fatigue on the part of American culture that Grand Theft Auto and its various iterations have been, every time they come out, been blamed so much about being this horrible offshoot of culture that in reality, they are such a product of our culture. They are not what causes these horrible things in our American society that the game itself is parodying. We're just reflecting the kind of society that it is. And interestingly enough, we're a society now that produces Grand Theft Auto. And so the game itself has become a bit self-referential. So there's a bit of it where that horse has been beaten to death and turned it into chunky salsa. But it doesn't surprise me that it's still being used as the whipping boy. It's just, I don't know how there's any controversy left in Grand Theft Auto. Oh, everyone is horribly shocked when something comes out that, again, we have so many things in our culture, whether it's like The Godfather. Michael Corleone is a bad guy, and he's the main character. 
Yeah. Breaking Bad. Walter White is a bad guy. And there are violent things that these characters do as the leads of the story. It's nothing new. But suddenly when we put them in a video game, people just flip the shit out, even though the people who are flipping the shit out over these video games are consumers of the other culture where the bad guy is the lead. And this is really nothing new. I think what we're looking at is a generational divide between the people who play these games and people who didn't grow up playing games and still think that this is the world of Pac-Man and Super Mario Brothers where everything is designed to be kid-friendly. The same way that we saw this with comic books, where people flipped out at the idea of a comic book that had mature content in it. Yes, yes. They were just like, but comic books are only for kids. No, comic books are just a medium. You can use that medium in multiple ways, including to tell stories or create games that are fit only for an adult audience. Grand Theft Auto 4 is a violent game, but it's a violent game created to be played by adults. Well, let's not forget, not 25 years ago, when home video games became an explosion with Nintendo, shortly the genesis to follow, the media could not help but refer to it as a toy. There was a complete denial in the form of the press about actually acknowledging that video games themselves were collaborative works where writers and artists would come together and create a world that could tell a story and that it was a medium for storytelling and for interactive storytelling. It was, these are our kids' toys and we should be worried about them in the same way that you'd be worried about whether or not the plastic on the yo-yo is toxic to your kid. We've been through an entire generation now who've grown up with Nintendo and who still play games in their adulthood, and it is a fully formed medium. Grand Theft Auto V now has every bit of flashy cinematography that you would expect out of a comparable Hollywood movie. They are aping the cinematic elements all over the place just to prove that they are themselves a legitimate and viable medium. And it's the same thing that comic books have had to go through for decades and decades to prove to the world that they're a serious medium in which to tell stories. And there's always going to be a more reactionary side of society that doesn't understand them, doesn't want to understand them. And because they have no desire to understand them, they'll be the good stand-in scapegoat that's there. But... I think the majority of people understand what video games are, even if they've only ever played Tetris. I would expect this to fizzle out in the next 10 years. That's just my optimism. I think it's a well-founded optimism, but I think it's just going to find find purchase somewhere else. It's going to be the new thing. The new thing that this generation did not grow up with. The new medium for storytelling. The new fad. That, oh my god, those kids are wearing dusters, they must have a gun in their pocket. Oh my god, that guy's wearing a zoot suit. Zoot suits, by the way, were actually illegal. I mean, it's amazing that we get these generational blow-ups, and then subsequent generations look back and just go, my god, that's fucking silly. We can have this meta-discussion about elements of the political class trying to use anti-video game fervor in a way to further their own political agenda, but a billion dollars of a game over the first three days says that it's a business and money talks and bullshit walks. And that's the reason why video games will be around because people love them because people buy them like crazy and because people are attracted to the kind of entertainment they offer. And that is what will sustain. Absolutely. Speaking of more outrage, (laughs) it seems like the internet is just a series of explosions of anger at entertainment. (laughs) But This one is actually one that was directed in an unexpected direction because it came out of something that seemed to be universally loved, which was Breaking Bad, the crime show about a science teacher who becomes a meth dealer after finding out that he has cancer and is worried about supporting his family, has just ended. 
They had their last episode, which was critically acclaimed, is fucking amazing. And if you haven't started watching Breaking Bad, you need to start it. It's on Netflix streaming. It's available on demand, I believe, from your cable dealer. You can pirate it from the internet. <laughs> you can, or you can be a good person and buy it on DVD. Yes, of course. However, it's worth owning. It's a great series. It, it had a great finale. It was a show that I think was top-notch beginning to end. I think that they told a story, they ended that story, and that the ending they wrote was true to what they created in their first episode. Absolutely. However, talking about this idea of TV show endings, that we've seen a lot of these over the past 10 years, where a TV show isn't like, say, Gunsmoke or Law & Order most of the time, where the idea is that it's just going to continue in perpetuity until it gets canceled. I think a lot of people are taking the HBO model for television shows nowadays is that they write a show with the full intent of ending it within about five to seven years, having a big season finale, and then everyone can move on to other things. That you are writing essentially a really, really long miniseries. Breaking yeah. Bad is a great example of that. Other shows that have done this have had much more controversial endings. And one of those shows that had a really controversial ending was Lost, which came out from ABC from J.J. Abrams, Damon Lindelof, and Carlton Cuse. And that, to this day, still remains an incredibly controversial ending for a TV show. I'm not going to tell you what it was, but I actually liked it. I know that there's a lot of people who don't. The same thing with the Battlestar Galactica ending that came out at about the same time. Yeah. Here's the funny thing. People still haven't gotten over the lost ending three years later because the night of the Breaking Bad finale, fans took to Twitter to basically hound and harass <laughs> and lambast showrunner and head writer Damon Lindelof basically to go, hey, that's how you end a show. That's how you do it. <laughs> You didn't fuck it up, you know, Breaking Bad, way to go. That's how you end a show, Damon, wink, wink. <laughs> I'll give Damon Lindelof some credit. He was retweeting all of the people who were doing this. Yeah. But that's not going to encapsulate everybody who's doing it. But by God, just on my Twitter feed, because I follow Damon Lindelof, there was at least 20 of these things. And I knew that there were so many people that immediately, once they had a satisfying ending to a TV show, they felt the need to just sort of stick it to another guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of animus there. I mean, I'm no big fan of Lindelof and... He, he'd need to do something incredible to make up for the failures that I see of his writing in both Prometheus and Star Trek Into Darkness. But I'm not someone who thinks that I need to go and threaten his children on Twitter or try to twist the knife in. It's this... People have invested, personally, I felt kind of a bit of sadness for Breaking Bad to end because you do put yourself in investment sort of long-term in these shows. And when they do get canceled before they're finished, or even worse, if the send-off in the finale is awful, it definitely leaves you with an incomplete feeling. And I suppose that's what the fans are responding to. However, was that feeling justified in them going back a few years later and trying to harass the man? I don't think so. You either are going to like it or you don't, and no one's going to compel you to watch it if you don't want to. That isn't the only thing that happened on the internet this past week. Hulk Hogan, the most famous professional wrestler of all time, has started a web hosting company. Or has at least hitched himself to one as the public face and put out an ad which is just fucking weird. <laughs> I don't really know how to describe it. I would check it out. His web hosting company is predictably named Hostamania. <laughs> he promises to give you the sort of reliable service that you don't get from the big guys. 
I can't imagine why I want to enter into a business relationship with Hulk Hogan, given what I know about his cancer-like ability to inject himself into a wrestling company, aim everything at himself, soak up a bunch of money, use the company to float up his ego, and then just take off with a check. I have to imagine that I'd feel the same way about having him host our website, which, by the way, is not going to be hosted by Hulk Hogan. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> I actually had mentioned this to our good friend Paul Rue, and he said, I wouldn't trust Hogan to host a tapeworm for me. <laughs> this is not the first time that Hulk Hogan has gotten into a non-wrestling side business. In the mid-1990s, Hulk Hogan got into the fast food restaurant business and he created hulk hogan's pasta mania <laughs> that's unbelievable <laughs> i think a lot of people agreed with you because pasta mania clearly isn't around anymore and in fact there are two images that you can find on a google image search of pasta mania one is the picture of hulk hogan from the logo where he's wearing these trademark red and yellow outfit and a chef's hat instead of his regular bandana and have big fork of pasta hanging over. The other image you'll find on Google Image Search is the remains of one of those former restaurants looking a bit like something out of the Road Warrior. I think it's a beautiful image to sum up the legacy of that restaurant. Well, apparently on Wikipedia, Hulk Hogan started an energy drink called Hogan's Energy and also sold Hulkster burgers at Walmart in the mid-2000s. And all of those seem to have also went belly up as well. <laughs> so he's clearly not been as successful as Kiss's Gene Simmons as far as selling out has gone. He's been remarkably good at milking dollars out of companies like TNA or Vince McMahon's WWF. But this may be his chance to branch out, mostly because I think this web hosting company isn't him behind it so much as just licensing his image to it. But this video... Oh my god, this video. Well, there was something strangely homoerotic about that viral video that they released announcing Hostomania, but we'll let you check that out for yourself. I don't know how I feel about it now. It kind of leaves me with a sense of shame. I don't know <laughs> what it is. It feels like an art house film that was made by a student whose family just happened to know Hulk Hogan. <laughs> it's this odd surrealist video where you have people eating crayons and Hulk Hogan kicking a man in the face while wearing a thong. <laughs> I don't really know how to describe it, but you can find it on our website. We'll link to it in this episode's notes. Oh my God, it's kind of a nightmare. I kind of have to let myself unravel a little bit to fully contextualize the experience that was watching that. <laughs> you know, there are people that I'd probably want to involve myself in a business relationship with less than Hulk Hogan, like deposed Nigerian princes over the internet. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Oh. But only by just a little. On the list of people who I would want to involve myself, Valve, the company behind the Half-Life trilogy, Left 4 Dead, and the very popular Steam service, is throwing themselves into the gaming console business with their new operating system, the Steam OS, and also a set of hardware standards to have a next-gen console to compete with the big guys, the Xbox One, the X-Bone, and the PS4. They're looking to shake up the home gaming market, so I think what we're going to find, this was just an announcement that they made, a press announcement with a countdown of announcements over a single week, but I think what we actually might be seeing is a real true competitor to try to break the triumvirate of Sony, 
Microsoft and Nintendo, and they have a very strange new controller that doesn't look anything at all like a Nintendo controller or a PlayStation controller that you should check out as no way to describe it adequately. But they could be set to shake up the entire world, or they could just be doing a Wii U. We don't know. Are they building a console, or are they actually giving you instructions to build a console with your own PC that will be compatible with the sorts of games they'd have produced on it? Yes and yes is the answer. So they're allowing you to use whatever your PC is to run their operating system for gaming. And they're also giving their standards out to hardware makers to make their own. So instead of having all of their consoles made by Nintendo, you could choose from one of a dozen consoles made by a variety of makers. Let's just say Samsung will make one. And you'll be able to, based on the price point that you want and the performance that you want, buy a console off the shelf, plug it into your television, plug in the Steam OS, and start playing console games. So I think this will be a diskless system. So it'll be different from all of their other competitors and the fact that it will be all digital distribution. That's just fascinating. The idea that you actually can cobble something together that may in fact be superior to what they expect you to come to it with. You are in fact creating your own system or at least just buying one that's compatible with the specifications that they put out. I think that could change gaming. And one of the things that I really like about this and also one of the things that I've always been a little bit jealous of as a console gamer of PC gaming is the ability that PC gamers have to modify the games that they have, not only to create new maps and new weapons and new ideas, but to do some just incredibly fun and crazy shit and continue to find new ways to, on some level, create the game themselves. The game just becomes a template for them to create things that they can share on the internet and other people can do as well. As you're playing a game like Skyrim, you can modify the game to do things that the game designers initially did not give you the ability to do, to be able to have animal companions that (laughs) nobody had given you the opportunity to have before, to create missions or maps for things like Left 4 Dead that the system never had the opportunity to do before. I think it's really amazing, and I think in a certain way, rather than just leaving the game creation to game companies, they've in fact opened it up to practically anybody who is both creative and has the technical know-how to do so. Yeah, it's fantastic. I'd love to see what they do more. We're not sure about what form it's going to take because they're just now sending out a beta they're going to send, I think, 500 beta consoles to people that have signed up on their service, and there's over 200,000 who have met the qualifications. So we're going to start seeing it come out on the internet and the gaming press. So we'll see whether or not they are going to be able to break the monopoly. Throwing more ideas into the pot, throwing more options into the pot, giving people the ability to modify. I mean, this can only be good for gaming, and it's going to be something that If successful, I think the other three companies are going to have to follow in some way. And that's what I'd be really interested in, because it really goes against the level of control that the big three, Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft, like to have over their products. To see a company like Valve really step up has so many possibilities. I just hope they don't fuck it up. Yep, me too. So with that in mind, it's time for us to announce the next panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians for the month of November 2013. We're going to do something a little bit different this next month. Casey Doran is going to be stepping into the moderator chair to talk about what, Casey? Yes, I'm pleased as punch to announce that our panel discussion will be Arnold Schwarzenegger, the man, the muscle, and the myth 
all about his films and his life. I think it's going to be fantastic. We've already got some great guests lined up, and I think, Mike, you and I are going to have to be cramming with some nice 80s, goofy popcorn action movies to get this one out the door. Arnold is really a universal actor that everyone has seen at least one of his movies. Everyone has done an impression of him at least once. He has undeniably put a giant stamp on our culture and on action movies in a way that I don't think anybody has ever been able to replicate. I'm really looking forward to this panel. I think it's going to be great. So on that note, I'm Mike Gillis. I'm Casey Doran. And we'll see you on the next panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. like that pasta maniacs all around the mall of america big bubba you better tighten up that waist on brother because the holster's slim and trim i've been eating my pasta mania and what you gonna do in the mall of america brother when hulk hogan pasta mania and all my pasta maniacs run wild on you what's he gonna do all right <laughs>